1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from sub-China. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, good morning. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. The whole thing, 2021, is now off to a start. Uh, I want to welcome everybody to our 11th year of doing this podcast. I can't believe it started all the way back in 2010. 500 some odd episodes later, Kobus, and here we are. It's really amazing. We're very excited in part because this is a super busy year. We took a couple of weeks off for the holidays and during that time, normally it's very, very quiet and, and the news cycle kind of slows down. Not surprisingly, that did not happen. A lot of things are underway right now. What we normally do at the end of every year and the beginning of a new year uh, over these past 11 years is we do a year in review and a year in preview show. And it's been kind of a custom and a tradition of ours, but we thought given what 2020 was, it was, it needed a different approach. And so rather than us do the year in review show, which would invariably focus on debt, COVID-19, vaccines, U.S.-China-Africa relations, there was no tension between Kobus and I in terms of what we saw happen last year. We said, okay, let's throw that away. And this year we're doing something very, very different. We're going to only do a year ahead show. One of the things that we're really looking at right now is going to be this question of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit, FOCAC. This is the triennial... China-Africa Leader Summit, that will take place sometime this year. We don't know exactly when. Bizarrely, the Chinese keep the date under wraps right up until maybe a few weeks or a month before, and then they tell us it's going to happen on this date. It is scheduled to happen in Dakar, Senegal, but we don't know when. Uh, But you can clearly see there's buildup to it in the Chinese messaging that FOCAC is going to be an important milestone for 2021.
2: Yes. I mean, I think it'll be really an interesting kind of temperature check on on where the China-Africa relationship is as a whole. And it will also be very, very revealing in terms of Chinese financing. You know, like shifts in between debt and other forms of financing and announcements of of financing targets versus non-announcements of those targets. You know, it'll be, uh, I I think for China-Africa watchers, it'll be a a revealing moment in, in terms of where the relationship is going.
1: Normally, again, as I said, we kind of read our prognostications and we go back and forth. But this year we thought it would be important to do something different. So what we've done is we reached out into our network to get uh, forecasts, insights, predictions, whatever you want to call it, from experts around the world on what they're looking at in China-Africa relations and China global policy and China and the global south more broadly, uh, for 2021. So the show today is going to be basically we have about nine experts from around the world who are going to share their insights and to give their reflections rather than us go through our, you know, our list. You can find if you want to know what we're thinking on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. I wrote a kind of 10 point bullet list of what to look for in China-Africa relations uh, for 2021. That's on the site. But let's get started right away. And we're going to go to Beijing where Zhou Zixian Who also goes by his English name, George Zhou, and he's a policy and advocacy associate for the Beijing based development consulting firm Bridge Consulting. Now, George has been doing a lot of analysis over the past few weeks on China's vaccine diplomacy in Africa and the establishment of what appears to be an increasingly sophisticated distribution infrastructure for the vaccines. And clearly, right now, Vaccines are the top story, and you're going to hear that quite a bit. It's going to be one of the themes of the program today from different folks. Uh, But so not surprisingly, George has his eye on what's going on with the vaccine distribution network that the Chinese are building. And uh, that's going to bring millions, possibly even billions of doses of Chinese made vaccines to Africa.
3: Obtaining and distributing COVID-19 vaccine will be a top priority for African countries in 2021, and a key issue in the china african relations given China's pledge to make its COVID-19 vaccine a global public good, and Chinese leaders' recent promise to prioritize developing countries, especially African countries' demand for COVID-19 vaccine. For African countries, there are three issues, availability, affordability, and accessibility. Chinese COVID-19 vaccine, if proven to be safe and effective, can help with availability problem. And China can also use its aid program to help with affordability problem. Still, the biggest challenge will be accessibility, i.e. how to transport billion doses of COVID-19 vaccine to Africa, then distribute them among people living in area with limited logistic infrastructure. We know that China is setting up manufacturing centers in Egypt and in Morocco, and a logistic hub in Ethiopia. China's Alibaba Group and its logistic arm Cainiao are already working on vaccine logistics in Africa. It remains to be seen how China can help resolve these issues. Will China provide fund to African countries for this purpose? Will the fund coming as loans or grants? Will China provide other support such as equipment or logistic operations similar to the one it organized in response to the Ebola crisis? If China ends up providing its COVID-19 vaccine to African country, what kind of international or local regulatory review process will they go through? Will Chinese vaccine developer acquire the WHO pre-qualification that will reassure the African public and help streamline the regulatory review process by each African country?
1: These are the questions we should follow closely in 2021. George is absolutely right to close his comment on this question of the approval process. And that goes to the lack of transparency that the Chinese have had in their vaccine development, which one of the stories over the past couple of weeks, Cobus, was the fact that there is growing concerns around the world, not just in Africa, but in Brazil, in parts of Eastern Europe, uh, even in North Africa, about the quality, just the quality of the vaccines and are Chinese vaccines safe? Are they reliable? Uh, We just don't know because they have not been as open as say Pfizer or some of the US European processes, which require a lot more transparency. So that question of transparency, I think that George alluded to, but never directly addressed is absolutely critical.
2: I think so too. I think the the other issue is is I my, my hunch is that China is probably going to be playing in a kind of a widening gulf between between Africa and its traditional partners. So I think there's a strong there's a strong um, perception in Africa that that global North countries are hoarding vaccines. Um, there, there was I, I saw reports in South Africa. I'm not sure how accurate this is, but you know alleging that that Canada you know kind of is hoarding about 10 times as as vac- many vaccine doses as its, its population um you know so so that's a there's a strong narrative i think in africa that 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 africa will be kind of shunted to the back um and that obviously opens a, a, a lot of kind of space for china to you know to step in Well, sticking with the vaccine issue, Jude
1: Moore, who's a senior policy analyst at the Center for Global Development in Washington, uh, who's also the former public works minister in Liberia, he says that COVID will continue to be a pressing issue in Africa in the year ahead, but we also need to pay attention to health and healthcare issues more broadly.
4: I think a defining feature of the new year and probably into 2022 is going to continue to be the coronavirus. And this uh, two-tier system that we have uh, regarding access to vaccines, and the ability to open up the economy and to begin the exchange of persons, right? People being able to travel for for many Africans, um, it's probably not going to be new because all across the world, travel has been has always been difficult for us, um, and this simply gives uh, people who have never really welcomed the Africans. It just gives them another reason to uh, prevent uh, um, Africans from travel. So uh, I think um, the the virus is going to continue to dominate our lives in in uh, 2021. But also, I I think all the other diseases, um, the diseases that have been uh, sort of neglected because of the focus on the virus, um, there might be other outbreaks of Ebola again, loss of fever, or just even regular uh, vaccination for other tropical diseases that have sort of been overlooked and neglected because of the virus. So I think health and healthcare is going to be big in, in, in the next year.
1: And, Cobus, that is going to play right into the US China dispute, in part because the US is by far the largest contributor to global public health, especially in Africa. The Chinese are playing up their contributions in the COVID 19 aspect of it all. But there is a tense messaging battle between the two. But I'm glad that Jude brought that up that there is a lot more at play than just COVID 19 in the healthcare sector.
2: It'll be very interesting to see, and I think this this year will will be revealing in that respect how the the different kind of in health infrastructures set up by by American and Chinese actors in Africa will will work. Um, you know, obviously China as as a network of of kind of medical teams across the continent. It'll be interesting to see whether and how they kind of play into the vaccine rollout. Um, and then I, I really share Jude's fear about the racialization of COVID especially later in 2021. Um, you know, the idea that, oh, you come from a, from a poor country where, you know, please, please uh, produce your COVID certificate. You know, that I, I 100% foresee that becoming a kind of a barrier to travel from Africa.
1: Okay, let's move on from vaccines, because that is definitely going to be a theme of everything that happens this year, as both George and and Jude have pointed out. But there's some of the economic issues are definitely going to be high on the agenda. Debt is clearly one of the most pertinent issues. What's interesting, Cobus, and I'd like to get your take on this, I would say for the past one to two months, the coverage of China-Africa debt issues has just faded away. We just don't hear that much about it anymore since really in November, the Zambia financial crisis was more or less the the end of it. It's just kind of gone away. And I don't know if that's because people are working on it right now and these things are being attended to. People have just been overwhelmed with all of the other news. But debt seems to have faded quite a bit. What's your take on why do you think that this is not as prominent an issue, at least in African media, as it was earlier in 2020?
2: it's difficult for me to say i my, my my instinct i think is is also your instinct that that it'll probably probably come back early in 2021 you know that that it it might well have to do with with issues like for example just us diplomats not you know kind of retiring the debt trap narrative for a while um and you know kind of everyone kind of playing it cool just in, in, in while trying to work something out behind the scenes but you know i i agree that that debt isn't going away i mean the debt the debt issue needs to be resolved um and it's not only going to be the China Africa debt, but but Africa's entire relationship with the world is is one that's now structured by debt. So you know sort think that, that's going to be a key issue of 2021 I think.
1: Let's go back to Jude Moore and hear his insights on what he thinks is going to happen with the debt issue.
4: The, the issue of debt still hasn't been resolved and, and China's role in 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 the resolution of the debt crisis on the continent, I think that's going to remain. But simply because we've had a pandemic and because we've had an economic crisis because of the pandemic doesn't, you know, suddenly um, remove Africa's uh, most significant impediment. Um, The head of the secretariat for the AFCTA highlighted that the lack of hard and soft infrastructure would continue to hamper our ability to move forward on the integration project. So in the provision of infrastructure and provide infrastructure at competitive prices, China will continue to dominate on the continent and going forward. But I think we're gonna see another aspect of Chinese presence on the continent now that most countries have no space to borrow and their, their fiscal space to accommodate more borrowing is, is just constricted to such an extent that we might see uh, Chinese entities um, begin to take equity positions. Uh, in, in, in African projects, especially for the, for the provision of, of of infrastructure. So, for example, we're going to see toll roads and, and other kinds of, of, sort of joint infrastructure. I think those are the two, thing, two things that we can look forward to. The final thing that I would say is is the re-emergence re-emer- of the United States as an actor on the continent beyond what we've seen before. I think there's going to be a continuation of Prosper Africa and, and people in the Biden administration who were... Alums from the Obama administration, they are going to push for a more robust U.S. presence, especially on the private sector side. And I think that's a welcome move. I think those three things will will dominate the continent um, and and politics and and the economy on the continent for um, the next year.
1: As always, Jude gives us a lot to think about and to chew on there. Let's pick up a couple of the points that he raised here, and I'd like to get your take on it. Uh, When he talked about the tollway, there's one experiment that's underway in Kenya. That's the Nairobi Expressway that's currently under construction by the China Road and Bridge Corporation. That's a 27-kilometer public-private partnership that will open supposedly at the end of this year in December, which is a year ahead of schedule. That's really remarkable. Uh, And this is a public-private partnership where... Uh, CRBC is going to earn most of the money up front and then in 25 years or something like that they will hand over the project back to the Kenyans and that is the model that a lot of people are looking to to see if it will work elsewhere but public-private partnerships, COBUS, have a rather limited application in part because they have to be revenue generating from the start. Some other roads for example that go into rural areas are not necessarily revenue generating or even some power generation facilities we've talked about this in Zimbabwe, uh, are serving financially weak communities that may not be able to generate the kinds of revenue to repay those investments. So again, the PPP model is very appealing, but at the same time, it does have a limited application.
2: Yes, um, and uh, particularly in in relation to things like water treatment plants, you know, it's very difficult to make those profitable in, in a kind of a commercial sense my you know it's 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 interesting the 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 issue that the jude raised in terms of the us's you know kind of new presence on in, on the african continent um in relation to the to debt and, and infrastructure financing specifically my i have a somewhat like different d- different kind of view from him where i i tend to fear that i think the way that the west is mostly going to show up th- in this year due to you know kind of to to kind of just you know a, a limited a limited bandwidth both both in in um, in the eu dealing with brexit and in the us dealing with the transition is that it's the western powers mostly going to show up you know kind of in in the form of of continued kind of pressure from eurobond lenders and then um, Possible austerity measures from the IMF, depending on what what kind of like the the specifics of the of, of specific countries' debt bailouts are going to look like. So, if that's the case, I think that creates a space where, despite. You know, kind of lending being constricted on the Chinese side, that, that the Chinese will find a way of of, finance, of continuing to finance some kind of projects in Africa, which will essentially like mean that Africa will be more and more, you know, kind of subject to Chinese leverage on, in relation to both debt and infrastructure. But I'm not sure if that that might be too gloomy.
1: Yeah, it might be a little bit gloomy in in my take. I do see the Chinese remaining engaged in Africa in development finance. I think there's going to be a lot more due diligence applied to projects so we talked about the uh, Nairobi Expressway as being one model another model is the AKK pipeline in Nigeria this is a gas pipeline that's domestic going bringing liquid natural gas from the south up to the north that's a 2.5 billion dollar project being largely underwritten by the China Exim Bank uh, that's another one but again that has revenue models built into it so I think that's the direction we're going to see things go so for in pure development terms of Building $6 billion railroads, for example, maybe not. Uh, That being said, I've been corrected on this on a number of occasions. Uh, They're talking about building new railroads in East Africa outside of Kenya, and the China Exim Bank is a player there. So we still may continue to see that. A lot of this discussion gained intensity at the end of 2020, with the report from Boston University that showed a sharp drop in development finance money. It's worth noting that there are different ways of calculating that development finance money that the Chinese uh, main primary policy banks, the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank and how they lend money. So there's a little bit of contention over those figures, but no matter what, there does seem to be a consensus that lending is going down. Now, this is interesting because it does bring up the U.S.-China-Africa angle that Jude referred to and that you talked to with a little bit more cynicism. So let's get a take from somebody who focuses on U.S. foreign policy towards Africa very, very closely. Uh, We're going to head over to Washington where Judd Devermont, who is program director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, he's been carefully following what's going on with the incoming Biden administration and looking to see what U.S. foreign policy in Africa will look like under the new president? And again, how much will it orient itself around China as it did under the Trump administration?
5: I think we're looking at a back to the future moment when it comes to U.S. policy towards Africa. The Biden team will restore some of the approaches and values that have long characterized U.S. policy in the past promoting democracy and governance, inviting African leaders to the White House, engaging regional governments on climate change, health, and other global challenges, and certainly welcoming back refugees, immigrants, and students to the United States. I think we're in store for a more balanced approach towards China. Seeing Beijing as a strategic challenge, yes, but focusing on what the US stands for, not what it's against. I'd be concerned if that was it, right? Going backwards, not forwards. But there are some signs of new initiatives, more focus on diaspora engagement and a possible urbanization initiative that I see as the building blocks of a new policy. Some outstanding questions for me. How much time and attention will the new administration be able to dedicate to Africa? This president will have a very long to-do list and how Africa fits into that is an open question for me. What will the administration do when it comes to Prosper Africa, the DFC, the FTA with Kenya, which I think are good initiatives, but the administration will have to decide whether it embraces it or distance itself from the Trump policies. And finally, this is a perennial challenge. Are you going to be able to have an affirmative agenda at the same time responding to all of the conflicts and crises in the, in the region? Ethiopia, the Sahel, Northern Mozambique come to mind. That's always a difficult balancing act, and we'll have to see how the new team does.
1: I love Judd's optimism there. There's a lot of hope. The expectations are very high that the Biden administration will make up for a lot of the shortcomings in the Trump administration's foreign policy towards Africa. I am not as optimistic that they're going to be as balanced on China. I think that China is going to remain a key driver of American attention. It's going to occupy a lot of the president's time, along with Russia as well, and I'm not so sure that's gonna be removed from Africa policy as a whole. So a lot of the Trump administration policies, including Prosper Africa and the DFC, uh, and the US Exim Bank, all have mandates to challenge China around the world, and including
2: in Africa. And I don't see that changing under the Biden administration. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think I think what's what is going to change is the style and the method of, of you know kind of how this issue is tackled. But I think the the the, the kind of general I think this such a kind of anti-China coalition across the aisle in the U.S. at the moment that it's going to be very difficult to you know to, to have a more kind of conciliatory or cooperative relationship with China which is exactly what the U.S. needs to do in Africa, you know, maybe not elsewhere. But in Africa, particularly, there's a lot of opportunities for cooperation. And in lots of ways, a kind of a softer, more cooperative approach will have more benefits, you know, around. Um, I, I, but I, I don't I don't think that'll be politically feasible, um, you know, kind of, particularly not in the first year. One of the things that we heard loud and clear last
1: year from across the board on from on African stakeholders, from think tanks to presidents, prime ministers, foreign ministers, is that they did not want to get stuck in the middle of yet another great power struggle between the United States and anybody else. A lot of the leaders who, as you've pointed out, Kobus, over the years, Africa has the youngest population and the oldest leadership in the leadership side, these guys are old enough to remember what it was like in the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. And boy, they don't want to be stuck in the middle of that because it did not end well in Africa at all. So with that in mind, it's going to be super important for Africans to follow what's going on in the broader U.S.-China struggle so that they can position themselves accordingly. And so we wanted to get some insights on the U.S.-China kind of the temperature right now. And for that perspective, we went to our good friend Kaiser Guo, who's a highly respected
6: China watcher and host of the indispensable Sinica podcast. So my chief worry as I look out onto 2021 is that both Beijing and Washington are going to squander the opportunity afforded by Joe Biden's electoral victory and will fail to arrest the downward slide in the bilateral relationship. Uh, Let's start with the Chinese side. On the one hand, I worry that the Beijing leadership has very much overplayed its hand and has misjudged the extent to which even as other leaders around the world recoiled at Trump's inchoate nationalistic spasms over the last four years, they're even less impressed with the way Beijing has wielded its clout during Trump's years in office. This isn't true just of countries that have historically leaned toward Washington either. And on the other hand, I'm also worried that Beijing may believe That the question of American intention is now finally settled. So I'm, I'm really concerned that China's leadership is now convinced that it is the intention of the United States, not just one president, not just one administration or one political party, to thwart China's legitimate aspirations and to see China on its knees. The thing is, viewed from Beijing, that is not an unreasonable conclusion to draw, whether or not it is in fact correct. But if Xi and those around him have truly closed debate on that question, it's going to be really rough going. This relates to my worries about the U.S. side. Here my worry is that uh, American political leaders are incapable of exercising cognitive empathy. They're incapable of getting any sense for what these last few years have felt like from the perspective of their counterparts in Beijing. Beginning with this not unreasonable sense of what the U.S., from where they sit, is, is truly after when it comes to China. Uh, and so now we have Biden talking about building a coalition of like-minded countries to compete with China. And and for most Americans, this may sound eminently sensible, but how will that land on Beijing's ears, right? Uh, some will say, well, I don't care how it lands. Uh, that That, to me, is just not an acceptable response when there is so much that we all need Beijing to do both in cooperation with the U.S. and its allies to address issues of massive global importance, you know, like global warming, but also to address its own domestic policies, for example, in Xinjiang, or especially in Xinjiang. I, I honestly hope we can resist the urge to grandstand, uh, to drop this really poisonous idea that Beijing only responds to tough talk and to threats, and to do what we need to do in order to lower the temperature for the good of the world, because I think a lot of good will, will come of that.
1: Well, that is very much, Kobus, What African leaders have been saying is lower the temperature. Given what Kaiser said, how do you think African governments are going to position themselves in the U.S.-China dispute?
2: Um, this is oh, this is very, very kind of interesting and complicated. Um, I, I think I think a lot of a lot of African leaders will 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 kind of move from the assumption that whatever kind of position they are in in relation to to this kind of you know to, to in relation to the us china conflict they're going to be in a very subordinate position you know though they're, they're going to be in a very uh, marginalized position you know the i, I think the, the the real kind of coalition building you know uh, you know against china is happening uh, among the um, you know in the global north um and with with countries like like australia new zealand you know um so if there is a if there is a Biden administration kind of move to shore up support and to create new kind of new new kind of blocks, you know, to, to subtly kind of undermine China and Africa by engaging African leaders, that'll be interesting. But I think there is I think you know one of the things to keep in mind is that the Biden administration faces some challenges in Africa that doesn't have to do with Afri- with China. Most specifically, as Judd mentioned, you know, like you know, the US is a is a historical security provider in Africa and it 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 always champions democracy, or that in, uh, at least in in terms of rhetoric. Um, and both of those are key challenges in Africa this year. Like, we've seen a, a real retreat in democracy, you know, o- over the last, you know, year in, in Africa, and we see very worrying security situations. Um, you know, one very close to home to us is in northern Mozambique. Um, and so, you know, ha- like, whether the U.S. has... The U.S. world may have to make some hard decisions about this, right? Kind of because because it's it's going to be difficult to show up. Um, you know, kind of blocks of of leaders or states willing to work with it uh, against China if it's also pushing for democratization in those same states or if it's also, you know, kind of considering some form of intervention to deal with the security situation. So, you know, so so I think in a lot of ways those like core U.S.-Africa issues are going to be affecting the the, the kind of options that the U.S. has to to deal with China and Africa as well.
1: So the U.S.-China dispute is not playing out just in Africa. It's also playing out Around the world and in many global south regions. And interestingly, there are lessons that can be learned from what's happening in these other regions that may benefit African policymakers as they try and forge a path in between these two great powers to do what they've said they wanted to do and avoid being collateral damage in a new Chinese, U.S., you know, Cold War new era of global competition, whatever you want to call it. So one area that's especially interesting is what's happening in the Caribbean. And we're very excited to have on the show for the first time uh, Rashid Griffith, who's host of the really, really excellent China in the Caribbean podcast. He's also a visiting research fellow at the Cambodian-based think tank Future Forum Asia. And he reflects on what's happening in the U.S.-China dispute in the Caribbean that you'll hear have a lot of parallels with what's going on in Africa today.
7: The ongoing acrimony between the U.S. and China has many spillover effects in the Caribbean. In 2020, the Prime Minister of Antigua cancelled a deal, a potential deal with Huawei, to build infrastructure in Antigua because he said explicitly it was the best deal, but he did not go forward with it because, in an abundance of caution, in how Antigua has to relate back to the U.S. In the same year, 2020, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, boycotted a summit between Secretary Pompeo and other Caribbean leaders because she accused Pompeo and the U.S. of trying to divide the Caribbean on various issues of interest to the U.S. like Venezuela, like China, loans, and so forth. On top of that, The general infrastructure plan of the Caribbean as it relates to China is going to be very heavy on the agenda. So, for example, the new president of Guyana, Ali, he came into power and chided the Chinese ambassador to Guyana over a bunch of almost failed projects that Chinese firms had been uh, building in Guyana over the last decade and have not yet to come to fruition. And a country that has to do with many cost overruns and the spillover from that. In other Caribbean countries, actually trying to promote how to get more loans and investments from uh, China. Although there's a lot of discussion about loans to of China to Latin America, most of those numbers actually only account for Latin America, like Venezuela, Peru, and so on. If you actually look at numbers, even as recent as 2018, only 0.3% of uh, the loans from China only accounted for around 0.3% of the regional GDP. So it's pretty almost trivial in some on a yearly basis. So the way that the Caribbean might want to kind of go far with this is to not deal it so much on a bilateral basis, but actually go through a multilateral process. So China has actually been a donor country to the Caribbean Development Bank for some years. And that's now becoming to a much more active uh, platform for loans arrangements. Also to note, the U.S. is not a donor member to the Caribbean Development Bank, and that might also be an interesting thing to watch in the coming years. How this political tension between China and the U.S. almost forces the U.S.'s hand to kind of be more engaging with the Caribbean after decades of neglect
1: fascinating what's happening in the Caribbean. And again, you hear so many of the same issues that we hear in Africa as well about Huawei debt, U.S., China. Another region we're going to focus a lot on in 2021, both here at CAP, but certainly in foreign ministries in Beijing and across the African continent, is in the Middle East, North Africa region. And for that, we're really excited to have the perspectives of Andrea Giselli, who's an assistant professor at Fudan University in Shanghai. He's also the head of research at the China Mediterranean Project and writes the absolutely fascinating monthly China Med Observer column that we publish every month on CAP and also you can find it on the China Med website which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Andrea is looking at three key issues in the MENA region for this year.
8: For sure 2020 gave us a lot of things uh, to think about Uh, with crises new Chinese initiatives and so on. And we think that 2021 will not be that different. So in particular, we will be looking at three broad issues. The first one is the growing number of regional crises from uh, long-standing ones, such as the war in Libya or in Syria or in Yemen, to new ones, so to speak. So tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean, especially between France, Greece and Turkey. Uh, we look at tensions between Ethiopia, Sudan and Egypt, of course. And of course, as there is a growing demand for, uh, on the side of regional players for external help, we think that it would be very interesting to see how China, even how China will decide to get involved. China has always been very careful. Let's see if it will be the same in 2021. Also, we will look at the growing uh, competitive dynamic that exists between China and the United States um, and how that will develop in the Mediterranean region. Of course, we we will pay special attention to Iran, but also in other places where uh, unfortunately, the shadow of this bipolar rivalry is growing, is looming large. So, uh, we will also look at how that will influence and shape China's relations with the region. Uh, finally, uh, not less important, is we always think of much of the one key assumption of our thinking about Chinese diplomacy and China's engagement with the wider Mediterranean region is that China will continue to be involved there. Well, its, at least in economic terms, its presence will continue to grow. But will it be the case? Uh, we know Chinese economy is undergoing uh, uh, deep transformations. Uh, some of them, some of, uh, in some cases, that might translate into uh, more investments abroad, but also maybe for fear of debt, both too much debt on the recipient side or too much debt on the Chinese side, uh, we cannot exclude, we cannot rule out the possibility that uh, China might also decide to decrease or cap its own economic engagement, which of course, might profoundly shape the nature of the relationship between China and the wider Mediterranean region.
1: China and the Middle East, North Africa. I extend that also into the Persian Gulf and even then up into Central Asia as well. That that That's the really the belt and road path that we've been focusing on so much. Kobus, this is really one of the areas that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves, but it's really, as you've seen with China's vaccine strategy, where it's focused largely on the MENA region. Morocco is going to be a, product, a, product, a potential Morocco is going to be a potential production hub. Egypt is a production hub. Uh, There's a lot of activity going on with the United Arab Emirates as well. So this region is going to be very, very important to the Chinese in 2021, not least because oil buying has shifted from Africa Into the Persian Gulf. The Saudis now are number one or number two, depending on how you count it, what month it is, in terms of supplying oil to the Chinese. They're buying heavily from Iraq and also they're playing much more in the space of the diplomatic space in places like Iran as well. So, as Andrea pointed out, there's a lot going on here. I don't think it gets the attention it deserves, which is, I'm so happy. Which is why I'm so happy that Andrea was able to share some of those insights with us. What do you think?
2: I, I completely agree with Andrea. You know, because that that I think this this region will will be increasingly important, um, and you know, it, it it might come to shape how we how we think of the Belt and Road um, as it goes forward. Um, it's going to be I, I think that 2021 is going to be a revealing year in terms of where we stand in in relation to the Belt and Road Initiative as a whole. Um, you know, we, we saw some some kind of predictions. Uh, one one that I read was in Financial Times late last year, that that the Belt and Road is being essentially being kind of de-emphasized, um, you know, and and that that there might be some rollback of 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 the the amount of resources put out into the Belt and Road. At the same time, my my kind of view of it is that it it that it it's less of a of a kind of a. Diminishment of it, and rather of a kind of a shift towards making it a, a tech and vaccine and diplomatic initiative. You know, uh, it could maybe maybe slightly less um, emphasis on hard infrastructure and, uh, and more emphasis on soft infrastructure, particularly also because it it um, it provides markets for Chinese companies that are blocked in other places. Um, so you know, so so I think it's going to be. I think that the Mediterranean region and then the way that it connects into Central Asia and to Europe is going to be a real kind of like litmus test of of, where, of of what the Belt and Road looks like. And I think then FOCAC is going to provide the vocabulary that I think China is going, to, is, is, is going to use in relation to the Belt and Road in Africa, particularly.
1: Now, everything that you've talked about in terms of the Belt and Road implies a state-led initiative. Let's shift gears here now to focus on what the private sector is going to be doing. And Hangwei Li, who is a China-Africa scholar at the School for Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, she's also done a lot of excellent research on Chinese labor in Africa, as well as the role of private sector engagement, which is a point she contends is too often overlooked. Hangwei thinks this year is going to be a pivotal year for private Chinese companies operating in Africa.
9: I guess many commentators will highlight Focac. That and possibly Chinese vaccines, as surely they will highly impact China-Africa relations in 2021 in many significant ways. But I would like to argue that Chinese private companies' engagement in Africa is also going to be very important in 2021. Many Chinese private firms I know are struggling and experiencing adverse effects in Africa due to the negative impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some even face collapse. The engagement of Chinese private sector in Africa has been overlooked. Yet over 90% of Chinese firms in Africa are private-owned rather than state firms. For many African countries, Chinese private firms plays a key role as a source of finance. But in 2021 and the coming years, will many of the Chinese firms still have confidence to keep investing or stay in the continent? If some Chinese big private firms go bankrupt or decide to leave the continent, thousands of their local employees will be impacted. Will it cause tensions between Chinese and Africans? Will the worrying things happen? I'm not sure. Let's hope for the best and prepare for the worst.
1: Rather somber note there from Hong Wei. <laughs> But I think she raises some excellent points there, and this is something that's often overlooked uh, outside of China, but the Chinese economy right now, although it's the engine of growth for the world, although it's doing better than almost everybody else, and certainly every other major economy, is facing a number of headwinds at home. This is an economy that is still struggling to recover from the shutdowns earlier this year. There's a lot of problems, and I think she alluded to that, that says that a lot of Chinese private companies, because they're facing difficulties at home, may not be as ambitious in their expansions abroad, especially to high-risk markets in places like Africa. Uh, That being said, There's another story here, Kobus. Towards the end of last year, we saw Chinese mining companies buying up assets uh, in in Africa, certainly Trance in the phone company, Huawei. These are all private sector actors in the tech sector who uh, most likely will use the opportunity of the economic downturn to expand their market share. So mergers and acquisition activity may go up, uh, but it is not going to be a a smooth ride, I think. And I think Huawei is absolutely right on that. But nonetheless... She pointed out something so important, 90% of Chinese companies in Africa are private companies. And I think that's a statistic that is lost on most people
2: yeah and a lot of them are also are not only private they're also small you know like there's there's a you know the the old mckinsey statistics that there's ten thousand you know chinese companies in 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 africa the majority of those are kind of mom and pop companies um so as you know as far as i as far as i understand um so so i think that it's going to be it's going to be really important to to track the the impact of um of the the recession on them um at the same time i i agree with you that i think the 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 Chinese private sector will continue to expand in, in Africa, among other reasons, because I don't really have that many other places to expand in. You know, this is particularly true for Huawei. Um, you know, the I, I think the the it, it's it's a lot is going to depend on on what the Biden administration does in in relation to Huawei. But I think one of you know one one factor that one shouldn't leave off the table is that in a for a lot of, I think, global north, you know, from a global north perspective, Africa frequently doesn't really Count, you know, kind of, it's it's, it's kind of like left left uh, left off, kind of many many kind of calculations or or many kind of you know kind of areas of the world that that receives attention. And I think for that that reason alone already contributes to to Huawei's growth. You know, here it's like Huawei growing in Australia is one thing. Huawei growing in like Malawi is is a different thing. You know, so it just it just commands less attention. It, it you know it, it it there's there's less leaning on on African countries. I think. Um, even now, to um, you know, to 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 break ties with them because they're kind of off the off the known map, you know, in 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 some in, conceptually. So, um, so I think the Africa provides still provides a massive opportunity for companies like Huawei, um, among others, because there just still aren't really Western competitors stepping up.
1: Two other categories that I think we'll see some expansion in next year, or this year actually, is in Chinese automotive companies. Now, most of those are state-owned enterprises, but we're starting to see a lot more dealership deals and expansion deals uh, between Chinese auto companies and African markets and African distributors. So that's one area. Also, white goods is another area. These are the washing machines, microwaves and things like that. Hisense is uh, expanding to a new factory in South Africa. Again, Hisense is another state-owned enterprise there. So not the private sector, but there's going to be a lot more Chinese corporate activity in Africa this year, most likely. But again, Hangwei really kind of put out a somber note for us to be cautious about that, given the difficulties about what's going on at home. Kobus, you made an excellent point, though, that the Chinese universe is getting a lot smaller. So what we've seen in 2020 is the fact that the U.S., Australia, large parts of Europe now are becoming increasingly difficult for Chinese companies to access. That being said, the European Union and China just closed right before the Biden administration got into office. A very, very significant uh, investment deal that may promote mutual investment there, too. So lots going on in the private corporate space. Let's move our attention now to trade this is going to be a huge year for trade. Uh, on January 1st, two key milestones were, were announced. Number one is the arrival finally of the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. This is something that has been the dream for decades and now it is finally here. Africa is now one of the world's largest free trading zones depending on how you measure it. Uh, $2.5 trillion in trade across the continent. What's interesting, Kobus, is that we started to hear back in June or July The first kind of bubblings of how the Chinese might kind of take advantage of the AFCTA and by bolting on the BRI with the AFCTA. Now, that sounds like a marriage made in heaven, in part because Infrastructure is one of the key limiting factors and that really holds back the growth potential of the AFCTA. And it's something that Jude pointed out at the top of the show, but also we started to hear in December with the arrival of the AFCTA that there are not enough custom stations that in Africa to really be able to process the trade. There the roads are not sufficiently strong for intra-African trade. We don't have enough railroads as well. And this plays right into what the Chinese have been doing on the continent for a number of years. The second milestone that is worth noting is January 1st also brought about the free trade agreement between China and Mauritius. So this is going to be interesting because as Judd Devermont pointed out, the United States and Kenya are negotiating a free trade agreement. And one has to wonder if these bilateral free trade agreements May undercut the AFCTA. Cobus, what's your take on that?
2: My, my my feeling is that that this year, if like one of the big themes this year is gonna be the linking of the BRI to the African Continental Free Trade Area. Um, and I think that linking will definitely happen rhetorically, you know, kind of like that that that, that I think will be one of the dominant themes of FOCAC. Um, how it's gonna happen materially and on the ground is a different issue. Um because that, you know, as as many people have pointed out, um, Africa just simply at the moment, you know, free trade is held back. Back in Africa at the moment because Africa simply doesn't have the the infrastructure, the, the kind of cross-border, you know, kind of roads, railways, customs inspection facilities, and so on. Um, so it's going to take a while for for the the free trade, you know, agreement to really to really move. And I think there, there is the danger of it being being weakened by bilateral um, deals. The, I think it's going to be interesting, and it's really it's going to be really important to to keep a, a, an eye on the China-Mauritius deal because. Yeah. <laughs> They, some of the kind of local content laws you know kind of defined in in that deal is actually quite restrictive like I think I think it you know more than 10 percent of of kind of internal components not made in Mauritius kicks it, it kicks a product out of of that free trade deal um that is different from something like a Goa um the the African growth and opportunity Act you know kind of the the free trade agreement between between Africa and the. US you know which has been quite quite kind of lenient on on, on that particular issue. So I think, that, like these little kind of kind of details, I think is, is going to be really important in, in in terms of how these trade agreements roll out.
1: Let's go to Nigeria now for a perspective on trade. Ovigwe Ego, Ego, who is a longtime friend of CAP and also a contributor and a policy analyst for Development Reimagine, which is a consultancy based in China. Uh, he sent his comments to us from Lagos.
10: Now, trade is very important now because what, what did not happen in 2020 is the kind of debt relief Africa was hoping for physical space. So what, what, is import, what we're going to see in 2021 is African countries will double down on trade. As a means to uh, generate that, that, that revenue and create that physical space for themselves, and the only way they can do that is to trade more. So it's also it is also why in the cooperation plan between uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, the African uh, Free Trade uh, Agreement FCFTA is quite interesting. It's going to be it's going to be quite uh, tricky for to explain how China is exactly going to come in to boost productivity and competitiveness because that's exactly what Africa needs to increase intra-African trade. Merely lowering barriers does not mean the goods you have to trade between yourselves will just fall from the sky. You have to produce them. And so it's quite interesting to see how that link-up with China would, you know, uh, support Africa's need for greater productivity of its economies.
1: Interesting point that Avigwe didn't make, but he alluded to, which is also product diversification. So one of the challenges that Africa has is it doesn't make the products that other countries in on the continent actually need. So much of what Africa makes is for export. I mean, we're talking about Rwanda making coffee for Kenya. I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. So one of the other things that we need to see is more diversification in terms of the types of products that are being made so that that can facilitate trade. So one country can leverage its competitive advantage and sell to another. That's something where, Cobus, we could bring in some of those 10,000 Chinese companies that McKinsey talked about all those years ago because they are quite good at starting up small-scale manufacturing. So one of the areas, in addition to the BRI, might be for Chinese companies and investors in manufacturing to help develop that product diversification.
2: Yes, um, I recently saw an interesting statistic that um, that while African, like intra-African trade is, is the, the rates of it is very low, like at the moment I think it's 14%, 15% of Africa's total trade is with other African countries, so it's very low. However, the the, the the stuff that they're trading actually tends to be more developed, more finished goods rather than raw materials. So Africa's trade with the rest of the world is dominated with by raw materials, but actually Africa's trade with itself is is increasingly moving towards finished and, and produced products so that's an encouraging sign I think you know kind of if, if if that can be boosted and if that trade can be facilitated then great um you know so so it, it, and, and I agree with you I think Chinese companies can be play a big role there
1: okay let's close out our discussion now with a big picture look at what's going on. And for that, I wanted to have Cliff Mboya, who's the director of research at C4 Public Affairs. It's a boutique consulting firm based in Nairobi that specializes in China-Africa Public Affairs. For those of you who are not familiar with Cliff, he's one of the leading voices in Chinese public diplomacy in East Africa. Uh, Last June, he received his doctorate degree from Fudan University in Shanghai. And prior to that, he spent five years as an information and public affairs officer in the Chinese embassy in Nairobi. We've had Cliff on the show previously. He really talks a lot about Chinese soft power in Africa, Chinese communication, messaging, diplomatic, uh, Twitter, for example. expert on. And I asked him, I said, give us the big picture. You're going to hear him kind of repeat some of the themes that we've heard over the past hour. But I think it's interesting the way that he kind of brings them all together. And he also, again, brings up a few other issues that are worth noting. In
11: 2021, COVID diplomacy will give way to vaccine diplomacy. And uh, following China's relative success in its COVID diplomacy, it will want to ride on that and push its soft power agenda through vaccine diplomacy, you know. And then, uh, number two, I think we'll see a lot of our private sector engagement. And uh, this will be as a result of the uh, reduced state funding to state-owned enterprises which will leave opportunities for the private sector to engage in Africa and this has already been set in motion and the success of the 2020 private sector cooperation format uh, gives uh, a credence to this and it will be interesting to see how this works out you know and then um, e-commerce will also be key where we have seen an acceleration of e-commerce in africa during the pandemic and uh, chinese e-commerce giants like alibaba are aggressively aligning themselves in africa and uh, it will be interesting to see how this pans out in 2021 i just hope that african countries will put in uh, conducive policies so that uh, we don't lose out in this uh, very important sector you know Uh, Lastly, technology will be very important. You know, the 5G debate will uh, rage in 2021, and we will see if uh, African countries fully embrace uh, Huawei and uh, whether the conflict between Huawei and the U.S. and other European countries will affect the implementation of 5G in Africa. So this will be the key issues in China, Africa in the year 2021. Interesting how
1: Cliff, in his comments, in his four points that he raised, touched on so many of the different themes that we heard from everybody else. And people in Washington, in Beijing, and also in Africa, Nairobi, and Lagos are all seem to be thinking about... Uh, very much the same thing. So vaccines are on people's minds. The US-China dispute is on people's minds. Uh, Debt is something that's on, you know, people are really still concerned about, even though it's not being addressed that much in the media. We must keep that in mind and top of the agenda as well. So Cobus, you know, we've packed in a lot of information here. This has been a dense hour of discussion. You know, it's probably too early to ask you to kind of reflect on it and just because it hasn't had time to marinate and to settle in but what is your reflection based on what you've heard from from folks about what they said and maybe what they didn't say what are some of the issues that you didn't hear from some of our experts
2: yeah it's, it's interesting one of the things i i didn't hear is um is climate change or, or you know a, a lot of focus on climate change and particularly um you know kind of the the issue of of chinese um, Chinese companies building coal-fired power plants in Africa. I think that's going to become a, a hotter and hotter political issue. Maybe not in the first half of the year, but probably f- from the second half of the year going onwards. Um, it, I was also struck by by uh, so Wang Yi, the, the Chinese foreign minister, is 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 in the in the next few days is undertaking his his traditional first first of the year visit to to Africa. He always tours a bunch of African countries um at, at the beginning of the year. This time he's Going to Tanzania is going to the Seychelles, to Botswana, but then also to Nigeria and the DRC, which I thought is interesting because you know the DRC. I mean, again, like this is complete like just conjecture because it's almost impossible to say what what the thinking was behind these choices. It's always it's always a uh, you know a puzzle. But but <laughs> you know, kind of saying you know, taking that as it as it is, um, the it, it struck me as interesting that he's visiting the. DRC, which is such a site of Chinese corporate engagement, particularly in in sewing up access to um to tantalum and cobalt, um, and that he's visiting Nigeria, which which has been the site of the of China's biggest diplomatic crisis in Africa, I think for for years and years and years. Um, you know, so to the 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 fallout from the the incidents in Guangzhou in April um, really took place in nigeria and, and 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 really shifted i think africa china diplomacy to a different place to the extent that the, that the the chinese um, ambassador at that stage was was subsequently moved to a different to a different african country um so i think you know it, it it seems to me that that resources and diplomacy you know kind of are are going to be key kind of drivers of of the china africa relationship and it they they were key drivers in the past and they're going to be key drivers in the future i think
1: interestingly the the movement of joe from Nigeria to Kenya, which did happen last year, uh, may not have been a result of the the tensions that experienced in Nigeria. That could have the, what the way the Chinese Foreign Ministry said was yeah, that it, could it have was been just part of their normal yeah. rotations. Just wanted to put that out. A couple other points that that I see that weren't mentioned in, in some of the comments that I think are worth considering for the year ahead. Uh, agriculture, huge, huge issue. 60% of employment in Africa is in the agricultural center. Uh, we have an excellent article on our website by Lu xingqing who is a China-Africa agricultural analyst on why... Agriculture should be top of the agenda in the upcoming FOCAC. So, we'd like to see more trade, uh, particularly as we've talked about BRI and the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. So, more agricultural exports into the vast China market. This is going to be especially important for China as it seeks to diversify some of its agricultural purchases away from, say, Brazil and the United States. Even though Africa is not well positioned to replace them, it can be a supplement to it. So, there was a an interesting soybean deal between Tanzania and China that does represent the growth in agriculture or at least the potential for growth in the agricultural sector. Um, Again, we need to really push for attention for the environment to be moved up. You talked about climate change, COBUS. Uh, Poaching is still a very important issue. Also, the wildlife trade. The Chinese have made a lot of progress in implementing new wildlife trafficking laws and also live animal sales in wet markets. But these have a lot of loopholes in them. There's a lot of fine print. It doesn't go far enough. It is progress, but it is not enough progress. So it would be interesting to see if that stays on the agenda. And then finally, an issue that's near and dear to our heart, which we covered quite a bit in 2020, is the role of the Chinese distant fishing fleet. And that has been especially acute off the coast of West Africa and also the coast of Mozambique in particular. But really, will the Chinese government bring to heel its distant fishing fleet. There is not an indication that they will, but the attention needs to be brought up. And I'm hoping that African stakeholders will bring this up at FOCAC and pressure the Chinese to live up to their own rhetoric in the FOCAC action plans that say they will not engage in abusive fishing in African waters. So that will be interesting for us to to look at. Whew, that's a lot to take in for the year. It's going to be a very, very busy year. We're going to be here tracking all of it. And we have this daily email newsletter. One of the things that we're going to be doing in 2021 is we're going to be expanding our focus a little bit beyond Africa to include other regions in the global south in order to show how Africa is really part of a much bigger puzzle here. When we look at Africa in isolation, we're missing how this is all interconnected with one another. The Chinese don't look at Africa Separate from other regions that are on the Belt and Road. It's all part of a global matrix. And so, one of the things that we're going to start doing uh, slowly is we're going to look more at what's happening in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia, here in, in where I am in the ASEAN region, also in the Caribbean, where Rashid we heard from is earlier. And we're going to be incorporating that into our newsletter, into our podcast. It will all anchor back to what the Chinese are doing in Africa, but hopefully will give you that missing context for, again, what's happening in other parts of the world may reflect and provide insights for what's happening in Africa. So we would be so thrilled if part of your New Year's resolution was to join our newsletter subscriber community. Uh, Thank you to the dozens of people in December towards the end of the year who signed up. We're really excited to get started again in this new year and that you'll be receiving it every day. If you'd like to sign up, it's super cheap. It's only $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. We provide by far the most in-depth analysis on these issues that we've talked about today. Many of the experts who you heard from today, in fact, all of the experts that you've heard from today, we reference their work in the newsletter as it comes out every single day. So this is a wonderful way to track the events as they're happening in real time. And as you've seen just from the discussion that we had today, there is a lot going on and it's going to be a very, very busy year. So we're excited to cover it for the year ahead. For Kobus Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda. And you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project... And to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.